0: welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ing, and joined by security practitioners Chris Kaiser and Killian Ingler. I'd like us to put our empathy hats on. There was a security pro in a network security training who noticed another attendee had a sticker blocking his webcam, but his BitLocker recovery code was printed on a label and attached to his screen. What do you think the disconnect is?
1: This is Chris. I thought this was pretty funny. It it sounds like, you know, there's, there's are certain things that should be obvious to people and sometimes are not. So it seems like the, the the joke that was being made here is that they're kind of skipping over the obvious. You know, BitLocker keys are something you don't want to have easily accessible, something that you should have and not anybody who just happens to walk up to your laptop, whereas they're also blocking their webcam, which is something that, you know, it seems more of an advanced step for certain people. So it seems kind of a funny uh, disconnect there between the two that, you know, one should be more obvious than it was to this person. Now, I did see in the comments, though, it could be that this person is more concerned about remote access to his computer access to his camera than he is about the BitLocker thing. I still think it's it's not best practice to leave that kind of information easily accessible. You you want to separate that out from the laptop at the very least. So if someone takes it, they don't have access to that as well.
2: What I thought of this is this is kind of a fundamental scenario that we see people are so focused on like the crazy and extreme, like someone's going to go through all the trouble to get this guy's access to this guy's webcam, which seems, again, very remote, would have to be pretty targeted. But, you know, that's that's the crazy external threat. That's the like, you know, nation state hacker, whoever. I, I don't know, maybe somebody gets him to run a, a script from a website or a drive-by, but that seems pretty remote and extreme versus the likelihood of an insider attack. You know, somebody in the office wants to do something nefarious or just somebody who's going for a snatch and grab. They're going to pick up a laptop, walk away, and then they have the data. And since the BitLocker key there is on there, there's a breach. Boom. He's done. Just like a couple years ago, the guy who left his laptop in his car with all the HIPAA data on it. It's really, really easy to lose a laptop. So I think I agree we have camera covers in all of our laptops here too. So that's, you know, important, but that seems far less likely than someone just stealing your laptop and having the decryption key right there.
0: I want to keep our empathy hats on to discuss a finding of a study that said that programmers will typically take the easy way out and not implement proper password security. So in this experiment, there were 43 Java programmers from freelancer.com and they were asked to write a user registration system for a fake social network. And so they paid half of the group with 100 euros and the other half with 200 euros to see if if you offered more money, it would make a difference in implementing password security features. Then they segmented the group even further to see if those paid 100 euros would store passwords in a secure way or store passwords in their preferred way. And then they also paid 200 euros to the developers, and they were under the same scrutiny too. So what they found was really informative that the level of understanding of what secure passwords meant, different things in the developer's world, paying more did not help. And giving programmers specific instructions to implement a secure password storage system did yield better results than not saying anything at all and then expecting developers to think of security by themselves and how I synthesize the results of this study is similar to the question I frequently ask about morals and dilemmas and and the philosophical concerns about what innovators technologists create that you have to include security as part of the scope of work you have to include some of the difficult outcomes that may come about otherwise you know if you don't include that you're not thinking about security Security. And then even then, the actual effectiveness may vary. And I think perhaps maybe this is what happens when code is prioritized over human interactions. What What were your thoughts based on the results of this study?
2: I think there's a kind of two fundamental breakdowns here. And I agree with you that when someone's putting out the specs for the system, they can't take security for granted. They have to specify if you're going to do this, if you're going to store credentials, passwords, it must be done securely. But what I found most interesting is the fact that even when security was specified, a lot of them did weird things. Like, they didn't necessarily store it in plain text, but I think a bunch of them, like, encoded it with Base64, which is just re-encoding it. It's not actually encrypting it. So what that tells me is there's, during the school or whatever, coding classes or however these people learn to code, there's a fundamental lack in knowledge. They need to teach them, like, some basic computer security skills on how to do this. I think almost every programming language has the built-in functions. Like, never roll your own encryption. That's a bad idea. That's what, what Mike Buckby would say if he's here, and it's true. But I think they all have the functions to do this right out of the box, to run it through, again, a built-in one to store it securely. So they don't even have to think about it. It should just be a function right in most of the programming languages. And I assume Java's the same way. I think there's a, a breakdown that, you know, all these coders need to go to a computer security class during school or for college or whatever when they learn this to understand what, you know, encryption is versus, like, hashing versus, you know, whatever.
1: It does seem kind of like a fundamental f- breakdown of just the knowledge that they had. There was a list in this article of the different things that they used to quote unquote encrypt it. And it's just like <laughs> some of these, it's killing this thing. You know, a lot of them use base 64, which is not really a thing that you're, you're supposed to be using for that or, or, or should use for that. I, and this could be from my limited, you know, experience in the, in the field of coding at all, but from what I saw, a lot of the education that's around, you know, coding is how do you make something work and less about how do you make it secure. It's not as big of a priority, at least for beginners. You know, somebody's been around for a long time. This is something that they'd experienced, they'd run into, but if these are potentially, you know, just coders trying to get something done quickly and cheaply and, and their knowledge that doesn't tell them that this is what I need to do as a default. It's kind of a feeling of, of the education system, I feel like.
2: I mean, the, f- the funny thing about it too, Chris, is in this experiment, they tried to eliminate the cheaply variable and it didn't really matter. It seems, you know, the 100 euros versus 200 euros. I don't know what the going rate is for something like this, but it seems like a pretty straightforward little piece of code that they wrote. So that doesn't also seem to net you a better result necessarily. Yeah.
0: It also sort of reminds me me of everybody's knowledge base of history and science is a little different. So, I just, you know, when I was a kid and I learned my history and science, I thought everybody had the same baseline skill set. And then when I went to college, I realized everybody learned different things. And so, when you implement or adapt your knowledge to what you do next, it really informs the final result. So, another step study that researchers found recently is that you can embed fake malignant growths onto CT and MRI scans, and then it can lead someone to believe that they have a serious illness when that's really not the case. And we're working towards automating a lot of medical care. And I think doctors are trained to have multiple sources of data points to determine whether or not you have an illness or what really might be going on. And patients are also often encouraged to verify the information that they get from a doctor. That's why they ask patients to get second or third opinions. And I'm reminded of the last podcast we did when, for the most part, people who are trained in security and doing their jobs, and we don't really have a major catastrophe yet. And so the security we've provided is decent, more or less, fingers crossed. But I think because hospitals are under the pressure to digitize everything to help with the day-to-day operations of a hospital, they've, you know, become a target. We've seen many of them pay ransoms during the ransomware attack, just like developers who were asked to create secure user registration system, healthcare providers aren't trained in data security. What were your reactions to this
2: research? See, I think this ties really great into the intro question. This is a case where in their study, they thought, oh, well, these systems are only internal between the machines and the, the review stations. Are, should be only internal to the hospital system. It should be a walled garden. But that's not taking into account the fact that a walled garden doesn't really exist anymore. They were able to either have somebody go inside and plant it right on the network without anybody noticing. And a lot of the machines, it was one hop away to get to a machine that was Internet-connected and also had access to this internal-only network. So that's a failing of not taking into account maybe the quote-unquote internal threat. And I'm using that also to say you know, somebody that's able to hop in very easily from the outside, you know, these networks aren't aren't necessarily air-gapped if they have one on the public network and one on the external. But even if they are air-gapped, it's fairly easy if you want to get in there to go and just hook up to it because it's not secured at the location. This is a public place. People come and go all the time, so it's not necessarily odd to see people walking around. And that's what the researchers did. They walked a guy in. In 30 seconds, he plugged something in that gave him access to the secure network. That was the one big thing that I found. The second thing I found, too, is I think this is a struggle with a lot of organizations is just dealing with legacy problems. A lot of the systems that run these scans, or run the software, I mean, can support encryption and non-repudiation and hash the files as they go across the network, even if they're not encrypting it. And they were dealing with the problem of like legacy workstations not being able to decrypt it or not supporting that encryption standard. I mean, look at you know Active Directory, for example. It has to be backwards compatible forever, basically. So you still have things in there that are encoded with like, you know, service takes that are encrypted with, you know, NTLM, which is, you know, cracked since forever. Ever ago, it's trivial at this point. But because we have to keep supporting legacy systems that don't have you know modern encryption standards, it's always going to be a vulnerability. And hospitals struggle with that. Just find funding to update all of these systems if they have old machines. One
1: well, of the things I found really interesting about this is the examples they gave were very highly specific. Like the the people who would have a motivation to do this aren't doing this to just you know random patient number one in random hospital number one. It, this is a very targeted thing that people would want to do. To they gave the example of say a politician or somebody that they want. Wanted to have some sort of either unnecessary surgery occur to them or necessary care not given to them. And the motivation to get somebody to go in and do that is, I guess, specific to, you know, specific situations. You know, again, I I don't think that is going to happen to me or Killian or Cindy or anything like that in the near future because it's not, not as much of a motivation to do it. It is still interesting. It is still scary. But it's one of those things that I don't think will be a massive issue for the vast majority of people.
2: See, Chris, I think you hit on a really interesting point there. As we might have said before, we've learned all it really takes is for an attacker to be successful is time and motivation. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to see these type of broad attacks like ransomware where it's indiscriminate. But what this really shows is that the motivation could be extremely high. You know, if Mm -hmm. there's a a political figure or celebrity or somebody who they want to target for something like this. So the motivation is through the roof high potentially. And the time it takes, as we've seen, is is almost trivial at this point to do this. So again, it's not going to be like ransomware. We're going to have people panicking in the streets over this type of attack. But I think it could be incredibly harmful if somebody did weaponize this because uh, the impact is so high.
1: Yep, exactly.
0: Just like the alarming article we had about a hacker's ability to embed fake tumors in a hospital scan, what do you do with the information you read over and over again that, for instance, pen testers can get into a university's system in under two hours? If you're a CISO, what do you do with all this international news? So you have breach after Breach, you have potential malware, you have to worry about ransomware, you have to worry about your users. What do you do?
2: From my perspective at least, it it's kind of a twofold approach. One is you have to have defense in depth. Just like the hospitals, you can't count on a walled garden to protect you anymore. You have to assume that there are attackers on the inside and they can bypass a lot of the controls you have in place. You know, and it comes down to time and motivation, like we said too. With enough time, they can probably get around everything. But if you can put up enough layers of defense and detection in there to cost them a lot of time. You might not necessarily sap their motivation if they're a nation state attacker. Just because you block one avenue doesn't mean that their mission is over. But if you can add time in there, that gives you better chances to detect it. And the more controls in there and the more things you're looking at um, and automating, the more opportunities you have to detect them before they can achieve their goal and get the data back out. And I think the second part is to operate almost on like a zero trust model where, you know, you have to have all these people in there, but constantly re-verifying who they are Are and rechecking their access, you know, or like Ronald Reagan said in the 80s, you know, trust but verify. I mean, it's the same principle updated now. So you can't just assume that everybody in the network or on the systems are quote unquote good. Let's hope they are, but there's a lot of ways that people can get in and bypass the controls.
0: Can you explain zero trust? Because I think it's a term that's being used more and more. I think Forrester created that term like 10 years ago, and now we're really taking it to a whole new level just in case people don't know what zero trust means.
2: Sure. It's expanded. It's been changed over the last couple of years. I think it's like zero trust extended now. So they've broadened it and kind of changed it around a little bit. But at its very kind of core, it's always checking and verifying, re-verifying, never taking any entitlements or access or any of that for granted. You have zero trust of your users in your environment, basically. You have zero trust of the security of things. And that's, again, that's the two-minute summary. I am not doing it justice.
0: Since Mike isn't here today, we don't have a tool of the week, but there's a fun article about a developer who amassed his own following and worked out some sort of deal with New York City restaurants where he can eat out for free or at a discount. And it sounds like he automated the entire thing. He has an Instagram account with over 25,000 followers, and he then figured out how to curate his pictures. And personally, I think it's more time consuming than it's worth and perhaps even something another hacker can use in another scenario. If you had all the time in the world, would you create something like this?
2: It's funny. I have probably the same amount of respect for as creative it was as the amount that it annoys me that it's successful. I, I mean, he, it's true. I mean, that was a really kind of neat hack about how he did it. But what really an- kind of annoyed me is that he's getting all these free things off the back of somebody else's work and photographs. I mean, they get their whatever, followers out of it but as I wouldn't say I'm a creative person but as somebody who you know enjoys photography you spend a lot of time you know going around and taking the pictures and that's that's a lot of work and that's your art and I know Chris is an artist too with music so maybe he has a different opinion but that just really annoyed me that that this guy is kind of getting free stuff off the back of this fake currency for not doing the work but it was a super creative solution so I also respect that like I can't be mad but I'm also like you know like really
0: that's what a lot of developers in some ways and that's sort of the tech model though no
2: it's taking a solution that for for other problems you know um, this this automation analysis and things like that that we need for you know in the security world like automating these processes and getting these algorithms trained to root out only the most things that are most important for human attention to separate the signal from the noise really that we can apply to like security analytics for example is really really cool and creative and it's cool that he can take that and use it in a different way and i think you're right that's the kind of the tech mindset is like how can we apply something we learned in one area to another? other. So I, I, again, I have a ton of respect and I thought it was a really cool solution.
1: I don't know whether I feel like it's... Here's the the weird part for me is like, to what extent is it fake? Because this is the same kind of thing that you would do if you were an actual Instagram influencer, just with a little bit of code on the back end instead of you taking the time to write this. I mean, basically, basically you would probably write the same email over and over and over again anyway. I don't love that most of the photography, if not all of it is... Taken from other people, though there's a lot of ethics around sourcing and, and whether or not you give credit. It sounds like he is doing his due diligence to do so. The one thing I didn't see in this article, and and I am wrong, let me know, but I didn't see any point in which he said, "After I eat at these restaurants, I actually do post about them." I didn't see that. Did you guys see that?
2: I can't say I saw that either. But let's assume that that he, you know, he makes good on it. I don't think it's an ethics discussion in that respect. But then again, Chris, actually, you brought up a kind of an interesting point. What's the difference between this kind of a benign use of it versus like you? know, a troll account used to grief somebody online, it sounds like the exact same kind of automation almost. Gather the crazy conspiracy theory articles and blast them out to everybody. And
1: yeah, I mean, you're right. I imagine there are a ton of accounts out there that work exactly like this with far more malicious intent. I mean, this guy's looking for a free meal. I'm sure we're all aware of the fact that there's, you know, troll accounts out there, accounts that are basically blasting out either propaganda or hateful ideas or any number of different messages with their own agenda behind it. This guy trying to get a free mail and, and hopefully doing the right thing to promote a business in the grand scheme of things is relatively not a big deal <laughs> in, in my book. I mean, but that's the, same, the thing though. You've basically created, if you can create this, what other kind of person or personality or persona can you fake or can you put into existence on social media? Because if you think about it, you know, the very small amount that you see of any one user or account on social media is easily fakeable. You know, if if you want to, you could go and post photos of cool sunsets and be like, oh, here's where I'm traveling or, you know, post photos of wonderful meals you're eating that you take from somebody else and say, hey, here's all the fancy places I'm eating dinner. How wonderful is my life? But again, it's a small window into what is assumed to be a much larger life or existence. And it's weird because I'm kind of torn at it. There's, there's implications of where this could be taken in a horrible direction. And this seems like, oh, look at this cool thing I did. But at the same time, kind of like, you know, what, what if somebody you know abused this? Or, or not even saying that, people are abusing this at this point, you know? It's already being done.
0: It's actually really hard to email these restaurant owners too. I didn't get to the point where he shared a default email that he sends out. I'm not sure it talked about how he got those emails to. People don't respond right away to an inquiry like that. It's hard enough for most people to get a meeting with someone to take a demo for instance, let alone get a free Free meal too, so it.
2: I believe he said he also scraped the emails right from their Instagram pages as well and also set it up to use direct message on there too. So they, the restaurants probably have some somebody who is their social media person on the side that
1: probably can see it. Yeah, and, and these kind of requests are probably commonplace for them because there are people who do this without the automation on a regular basis, for sure.
0: Good for them. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Chris Kaiser, Killian Engler, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you enjoyed our panel discussion, please subscribe to our show. You can find more episodes of the Inside Out Security Show on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, and more. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. It helps them discover great discussions like the one we had today. And if you have any free tips on getting free food, maybe hand it over to us. <laughs> Thanks, guys.
2: Thanks, everyone. Thank you.